I invite you now to take a Bible and to open it to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. It's our plan, Lord willing, for the remainder of the year to go through every New Testament letter and look at the first chapter, uh, how it begins, and then the last chapter, how it ends. And uh, I was telling that to my oldest son, yesterday and he said well what are you going to do at John 3 and then I was thinking about that what does he mean John and they're like oh third John and I was like okay he means third John but what he's remembering is that there are some uh, letters in the New Testament that only have a chapter and so I was impressed that he remembered that there was shorter letters that don't have a first or last they just have one and so I said yes yes counting for those any of the books that have three or less chapters we'll put together in one message but we'll still look at the beginning and the end But for all of them that have four or more, we'll look at the first and the last chapter to see what they have to say. So we just began it last week with Matthew 1, and here we are in Matthew 28, and this is what it reads. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly, and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." And that concludes our reading. Here we have initially the, the story of the resurrection of Jesus. We said last week that as Matthew opened his gospel, he reminded everyone listening of the promises that had been made to Abraham and then the promises made to David. And there was a sense of anticipation and excitement that someone was going to come through whom all the earth would be blessed and it would be a new king that would rule on David's throne. Well, many people were waiting for this, and they were excited about it. But they also had a sense of expectation of then what that would look like. 
And as the gospel unfolds, uh, for many of the people who were excited for this new king to come, and in their minds thought, well, this new king is going to come and he's going to go after all of our enemies, they were then surprised when this king actually preached a sermon on a mountainside telling them that they should love their enemies. And they were like, wait a minute, what do we do with that? Or that he would come and sort of enter into all of their frustration and anger about the way the Romans were treating them and that he could sort of lead the charge against them. And yet he seemed content with life circumstances. He challenged in that same sermon everybody who was listening to say, why do you care so much about clothing and food and all of these things that the Gentiles do? Don't you know that your heavenly father knows everything that you need. And there again, as they're confronted with him, he seems like different than they were expecting. Rather than sort of rallying the troops and uh, turning up the volume and the heat of the anger and the opposition, he seemed to really believe that his father was in control of it all. And that as we opened our call to worship, he invited people to enter into his rest that his yoke was easy and that his burden was light. And as the gospel continues to unfold, eventually it becomes clear that he is in saving his people from their sins. That was the promise in chapter one. What's going to happen is that he's actually going to suffer for our sins. That he's gonna become a sacrifice for our sins. And again, for most people, they're hearing this. It sounds strange. It's not exactly what they were expecting. And so many different signs took place to prove that you really can trust him. This is the Messiah who's come. This is the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham and to David. But there was always then a skeptical group around him. And eventually they come to him and they say, we demand a sign from you. Like you have to prove that you really are who you are because so much of what you're doing is strange to us. It's not what we were expecting the Messiah to do. But Jesus confronted them and said, one, I've already been doing a lot of signs. Um, many people could tell you of their healing and of their uh, wholeness and of their being set free from demons if you were willing to listen. And so eventually what he says to them is, there's actually gonna be no more signs for you except the sign of Jonah. And what we read in the first part of this chapter in verses one through 10 is just that, the sign of Jonah, which he had shared with them was going to be a definitive proof that he really was who he said he was. So he's reminding them of an Old Testament story of a prophet who had been in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights and then seen alive again. And so he was preparing them ahead of time that there's going to be a day when it looks like he's lost. It looks like he's swallowed up. It looks like it's over. It looks like he's done. And then he's going to be alive. And nobody will be able to deny that he really is who he said he is. And therefore, everything he taught about sin and life and his heavenly father are in fact true. And in that story, in the Old Testament, the proof was so definitive that it converted the, the people of Nineveh who were not followers of God, who didn't care a whole lot 
about God and what he had to say. But something happened in their day that was so miraculous that they changed. They realized that they were following a foolish way and now they needed to follow a different path. They repented. And Jesus said to those leaders, there's going to come a day where you're going to see the sign of Jonah, where there's going to be something so powerful and so amazing you won't be able to deny it. And if you're willing, it can change you. And Jesus was put up on a cross, buried. What we didn't read is that at the end of chapter 27, those very same chief priests who brought Jesus before Pilate and said, you need to crucify him, they themselves said, you know, he said that he might come out of that tomb. So is there any way we could put extra protection on that tomb so that his disciples don't come and try to trick everybody and lie that the tomb is empty because he's risen again? That's where uh, chapter 27 ended. So they themselves remembered what he said that it would look like he was gone and that he would come back. So much so that they asked for extra guards and extra protection of the tomb. So they remembered what he said. And here, the sign takes place. We as Christians believe that in Jesus rising from the dead, that means the payment that he made for our sins is sufficient. It's accepted in full. Anyone who chooses can come and can receive the goodness that Christ offers, can be a part of this new family, can enter into this kingdom. Anyone and everyone who places their faith in Jesus can now be grafted into the promises of Abraham and David. He's our Messiah. He's the world's Messiah. And here's the definitive proof, which no one can deny. It's this sign of Jonah that takes place. He rises again from the dead. They couldn't guard the tomb sufficiently enough to keep him down. So the opposition of the devil couldn't keep him from the cross. And all of the strategies of the leaders and the chief priests and the elders to seal the tomb couldn't keep him there. He was victorious. That's what we celebrate in a special way every Easter, but it's what shapes the whole of our faith that because he was victorious, we gather together and we worship. And so we invite other people to read about it, to consider it. Not that faith is then just closing your eyes and just accepting whatever somebody tells you because they're an authority over you, but to truly yourself investigate, study, did he really do what he said he was going to do? And did he do it in such a way that people, many, many different people, could testify to it? We believe he did, and if you're willing to investigate it for yourself, you'll find yourself confronted with the same reality. But then we see two very different reactions to this sign. First, there's the women who come. They come to the tomb, and we know that they're not immediately expecting that there's going to be a miracle that has taken place this morning. They're coming to prepare the body further for burial. But when they see that the tomb is empty and they hear from the angel, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he's risen as he said, come and see the place where he lay. 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen. Behold, he's going for you. And says they departed quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And then while going, Jesus met them. And then it says they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. So here, these women were... They weren't expecting all of this at the beginning of the day, but now that they've seen it for themselves and then they see Jesus, there is the worship of the women. But that is an appropriate response to someone who can die and rise again, can prove that everything he said was true. There's this eagerness that even though it's uh, understandably in their humanity, they're scared by what they're observing. They're, they're afraid and excited. They have joy, and they're eager to tell others, but it's still fresh. But now the opportunity to see Jesus himself is that they worship him, that he is worthy of our worship. And then when he says, now go and on to the disciples and tell them to go up to Galilee, and I'm going to meet them there too, they're just as excited to do it. There's this eagerness on their part in seeing the sign fulfilled to run and tell other people. Now, what's fascinating is that Matthew tells us there were others who witnessed what happened, and they go and tell the same thing. It says in verse 11, while they were going, the women going to tell the disciples, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So the women were going to tell what happened, and then the guards were also going to tell. And they were saying the same thing about what took place. But what a different reaction. It says, when they assembled with the elders and they had taken counsel, they were given a sufficient amount of money to the soldiers and said, you tell people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. It's a heartbreaking response. The sign is clear. They invested in the work to seal the tomb. A report comes back to them. Failed. (laughs) We couldn't seal the tomb. He's really alive. The tomb is empty. And there's a moment for them, just like the people of Nineveh, to repent, to change, and say, okay, we were wrong. But they don't. Because for all of us, repentance is not just an issue in our mind. It's more than anything an issue of our hearts. Are we willing to change? If we discover we were wrong all along, are we open to admitting that and changing. And if our hearts, we say, no, I'd rather just double down and I'd rather just believe what I want to believe and it doesn't matter how much evidence is presented to me. That's a profoundly scary place to be because it is to be so committed to an idea or a conviction that, that no amount of evidence, no amount of reason, no amount of testimony from other people can persuade you otherwise. And so in contrast from the worship of the women, we have the rejection of the leaders. They reject it. They hear the same story. They have an opportunity to admit that they were wrong, but they choose not to. 
They choose to give themselves over to a lie and they pay, and it says, and they have to pay a large sum of money. We don't know how much. But to get these soldiers to start to tell a different story, they have to pay a lot of money. And it's a sad rejection on their part to hold on to whatever little authority they have or power they have that they wouldn't accept the good news as it was brought to them. But Matthew, in ending this way, is actually sort of framing the end in a, in a very similar way to how the gospel began. In Matthew 1, when Jesus is born, shortly after, we see this similar contrast. Right after he's born, in Matthew chapter 2, what he then tells us are about people who were willing to travel a really far distance from the east, wise men, and they were looking for this king who was going to be born. And when they hear that he's born and they find out that he's going to be in Bethlehem and they go and discover that he's really born, just like the women, they are excited and there's joy and they give extravagant gifts to the new king. And at the same time, there was somebody else in King Herod who heard the same news, who then learned the same prophecy, who then had it verified the same way, but he got angry. He viewed Jesus as a threat to his power and a threat to his status. And so where the wise men worshiped, Herod rejected. And Jesus often creates that dynamic. When he proves himself to be who he really is, we are only left with two options of accepting him to be who he said he is or rejecting him and suppressing that truth. For Herod, he wanted to hold on to his power and he rejected Christ, not because of a lack of evidence. And here again, for the leaders, uh, the, the chief priests who then assemble the elders, it's a group of people talking together and they're so committed to their own status and their own system that they reject the Savior. And so we've titled this series uh, Grace and Truth as John's way of summarizing what's come to us in Christ. When we reject grace and truth, what we embrace is betrayal and lies. When we reject the steadfast love and faithfulness of God revealed in Jesus, what we say yes to are the betrayals of our own sinfulness that will sell out anybody and everybody to protect ourselves and would rather go on believing a lie than to accept the truth. And for anybody in that situation, the scriptures would compel us to stop it, repent. Why would we continue to do that? Uh, just even in normal relationships, uh, I've heard it said, uh, you're just sort of imagining yourself as you get older, like uh, it was said in your 20s, you care what a lot of other people think about you. Uh, then in your 40s, you care a little bit less about what people think of you. And then by the time you hit your 60s, you realize nobody cared what you had to think. Whatever your opinions were 20 years ago and whoever you thought was really popular in whatever group you wanted to be in, and we all experience that, whatever our uh, level or status is. And so when we then ourselves hold on to 
our titles or our power or whatever seems to be working for us, there's a foolishness to hold on to something that ultimately is fleeting rather than to be open to embracing something that we can't deny and that will never end. That because if death itself could not stop Christ, if the tomb could not be sealed strong enough to hold him, he didn't just rise again back in the past, but it means he's alive now. He's available and accessible to you and to me. But it'll be evident in our own hearts which way we go. Are we open to change, willing to repent, humble to see what's in front of us, even if that means we have to say, I'm sorry, to ask people to forgive us, to admit that we were wrong. But we'd rather be wrong now and right forever than to pretend to be right now and end up wrong forever. But we'll either be drawn in closer desire to follow in worship or in rejection. We'll either be those who are joyfully willing to go and tell and incur even the cost to go and do that. Or we'll actually spend our time and our money and our resources trying to preserve and protect a house built on sand. That's how Jesus finished his sermon that he gave in Matthew chapter 7. And so then the last thing that is given is a commission to all of us as his followers. And so from looking at this contrast of the worship of the women and the rejection of the leaders is now this commission to all of us. And Jesus said, authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, all that I have commanded you. For behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. For all of us who, one, see in Matthew's telling us of this beautiful gospel story that Jesus is who he really said he is and also that time and again the people that you would think would reject him are actually open to him and so many of the people who you would think would accept him are going to reject him we should be prepared to go anywhere and everywhere Remember how it was people from the east who came and worshiped the king. Remember how it was the women who came to the tomb who were the first to hear and go and tell. To invite us as the believers in this message as his body to say, one, anyone and every, anyone and all of us can come to him. And we should also be willing as we go to share this news with anyone and everyone. We can't prejudge ahead of time if someone is going to or not going to accept the message. And sometimes uh, even when we prejudge, we'll actually be totally wrong because it's not just a matter of the mind, it's also a matter of the heart. We need to be aware of that. We need to ask God to continue to challenge us and say, are there any things or ideas that I am so committed to that I just wouldn't even accept? Reasonable evidence put before me. Other people loving me, trying to help me see what is actually right. 
am I unwilling to ever say I'm wrong? <laughs> am I unwilling to say I'm sorry? Am I unwilling to ask somebody to forgive me? If you're a Christian, hopefully the answer is no, because that's how we get in. <laughs> we get in by admitting we were wrong. We get in by asking God to forgive us. We get in by acknowledging that our ways are futile and God's ways are best. But then as we go forward, therefore in this commission is not a description to go only to one place or only to one person, but says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Don't judge ahead of time who's worth it or where's worth it or what. Be open-handed and open-minded with all the places that God would call us to spread the message of his grace and truth to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we recount both the miraculous signs that you've done, but also see the stubborn hearts of so many people uh, that you encountered, we don't gather and assume that we're better than anybody else. We acknowledge that our hearts are stubborn too that our minds can be so committed to certain things that we just lose our ability to properly see and respond to what's in front of us. And so, Father, we pray that you would humble us uh, in this regard, that you would search and know our hearts, that you would reveal to us the ways in which that same rejection of King Herod and then the rejection later of the Pharisees uh, where there's a, a manifestation of that in each and every one of our own hearts and help us to repent of it. Help us to be open-minded and open-hearted to all that you're doing in our world and that as you send us forth into this world to be open to all the spontaneous ways you would use us to encourage other people that we can, Father, too quickly make excuses in our mind of why not even try and why not here and why not now. And that you would help us to repent of those excuses as well. But that we would, like the women, be joyfully and eagerly desiring to go and tell of the good news of who you are and how great your love is is. We need your grace to do this, and so we pray that you would give it to us abundantly. In Jesus' name, amen.